Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Welcome again. We are excited to be together in this new series, uh, walking through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, this series that we've been calling Rebuild. Because if you've noticed, life, in life, everything's always breaking down. The car, the house, the tool you buy to fix the house, everything, your friendships, your marriage, everything's always breaking down. And we live in a world that's deeply in need of being fixed. But in no way more than when it comes to our relationship with God. Whether as individuals or as a body, that that relationship would be rebuilt. And God would do what only God can to make the relationship possible. And in this series, we're seeing how he does just that. At a particular time, at a particular point in his people's history, after, after they'd lost their land and their relationship with him, now he brings them back and invites them in as they look forward to him doing that for good in the sending of his son, Jesus. Because God is a God who's in the business of rebuilding, of reviving hearts and restoring life. And we saw that last week because we looked at how God rebuilt his people's identity, and we'll see it again this week as they then turn to rebuild their worship, which is what we're going to be looking at today, the rebuilding of worship, as we look at Ezra chapter So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there to Ezra chapter 3, and we're going to begin by reading it from verses 1 to 13. Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. This is God's word. It says this, When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the, the son of Josadic, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the, the son of Shiltiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place. For fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths as it is written. And offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that the regular burnt offerings, the offerings of the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundations of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to to the grant that they had received from Cyrus, king of Persia. 
Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the, the son of Josadic, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the, the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Kadmiel uh, and his sons, the, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hanadad and, and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and, and the Levites, the, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great Shout when they praise the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look today at the, this particular time, this particular point in your people's history, at the laying again of the foundation of the temple, at the response that elicited from them, at the, at the establishing once again of the altar. I pray today in a season and a time in history when we don't have an altar, when we don't make those kinds of offerings anymore, when the temple is no longer the same, and yet we have reason to shout all the more. I pray that you would, in us, wherever we are today, whatever we are coming from, however we're coming here, whatever we're bringing into this, I pray that finding our identity in you, we would likewise turn to rebuilding worship as the foundation of our lives. I pray it would be so in the name of Jesus, the one we do worship and are able to worship through. Amen. I remember the day 18 years ago, as I'm sure that many of you do as well. When word began to spread that at 846 on that bright and sunny Tuesday morning, a plane, a Boeing 767, had crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Do you remember? 
You remember where you were? And then all eyes were instantly fixed on a screen, wondering what it was, an accident or intention, only to see another blast a hole through the south tower standing beside it. I remember the day. I remember where I was. I remember what I was wearing. I remember who I was with. When those two towers then fell, when the world as we knew it was changed forever, I remember the day. When my dad, shortly after, found out that the hijackers had trained at, at, at the airport in New Jersey that he, he managed the air traffic control tower at. I remember the friends who, who found out that the, that day that, that they had lost their loved ones. And the others who watched theirs joined the countless individuals in the search and rescue. I remember driving up a hill not too far from my home in New York and seeing the skyline disappear in a cloud of ash. I remember the destruction. I remember the devastation and the incalculable damage that had been done to our nation on that day. But I also remember how joined by the voices of our nation's leaders, the elected officials of New York City issued a call that very day to rebuild. Which would begin with the laying at ground zero of a new foundation. I don't know if you were ever there to see the pile, as it was called, by the, the workers who, who spent day and night looking for survivors. I don't know if you, you, you ever were there when the pile still stood, which made the call to rebuild all the more remarkable because that site would someday not only be where life had come to an end, but where new life had begun. We could spend all morning talking about that day in our nation's history, but it's worth remembering that the destruction and devastation we experienced on it is one that has been shared the world over throughout history. Maybe not to the same extent at any one time, but it is the same thing. It has the same root, that destruction and devastation, and was an experience not unlike the one we read about in Ezra chapter 3. When, when the people of Israel gather at the site of, of their nation's greatest devastation, where their temple once stood in the hope that it would one day likewise mark not only where life had come to a screeching halt, but where new life had begun at Israel's ground zero, where they took up the task 
of rebuilding worship. That was what was of first importance, primary priority. But why worship? Why worship immediately in the wake of God rebuilding their identity? Because whether in New York, in the wake of 9-11, or or with God's people back in this passage, one of the questions that, that, that had to be going through everybody's mind was, where do you even begin? And yet here, God's answer to his people, at least, is that you begin with worship. But why worship? Because worship is what life is for and where life begins and what makes life what it is because like the title of one book says we become what we worship what we serve what we submit to whether it's celebrities or a sport popularity or power that as the author puts it and the bible makes clear and all of human experience confirms what people revere they end up resembling, either for their ruin or for their restoration. That what you worship, you end up resembling. Because worship is humanity's ground zero. It's where life comes crumbling down and where its rebuilding must begin. So that God rebuilds, after God rebuilds his people's identity, his people then turn as of, again, first importance to the rebuilding of worship. But the question for us this morning is, what does that even look like? What does worship look like at ground zero when stripped of all the bells and whistles, when in survival mode? Where does worship begin? What is at its heart? Well, if it's anything like what we see in this passage, worship, if you boil it down to its bare essentials, is about responding to God's word, giving to God's work, and speaking to God's world. It's about responding to God's word, giving to God's work, and speaking to God's world. First, that worship is about responding to God's word, which is what you find uh, the the Israelites doing in this passage, even as far back as verses 1 and 2, where it says, when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, which is where we left them in chapter 2, it says the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem, united in purpose, unified in perspective, as one man where they built under the leadership of this this priest named Yeshua and this this son of David named Zerubbabel, where, where they built, it says, the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. What? As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Which, just to make clear, means that when God brought his people back to the promised land, and worship became that matter of first importance, that matter of first priority. They didn't set out to worship however 
they saw fit, however they thought best, but did so responding to God's word, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Why? Well, for the Israelites, it was because they recognized, at least in some level, that, that disregarding God's word is what they got them kicked out of that land in the first place and brought back into relationship with God, brought back into that land, they devote themselves to what they should have cared about to begin with. They should have cared about. They, they devote themselves to, to what God thinks and what God wants and, and what God said in his word. Like a, a kid who's a little gun shy after uh, he gets in trouble, right? And the next time, he does it exactly how you say and reminds you that he's doing it exactly how you say, right? But it's broader than just that, right? It's not just because we got this wrong once and we're going to get it right this time around. It's not that this is just a better way to worship or even the best way to acknowledge God's worthiness. Because that's what worship is. It's an acknowledgement of God's worth. No, in fact, this is the only way to worship. Because if you're trying to worship God and acknowledge God's worthiness some way other than the way that he's laid out in the Bible, you're not really worshiping him at all. You're worshiping yourself. Because what you're saying through that is that you know better, and that he's only worthy of being worshipped as you see fit. But let's just be frank. I'll be frank. You be you. Let's just be frank. God isn't going to satisfy himself with our worshipping him however we choose, or with our living before him however we think best. What he wants from us and wants for us because he, he knows it's best for us is that we live in his world, his way, as he's laid out in his word. Because he's worthy not only of being worshipped, but of being worshipped on his own terms. And even though for us today that looks a lot different than it did in this passage for the children of Israel... We don't have an altar. We're not rounding up the kids' latest 4-H project to, to, to offer the latest burnt offering. Those things were shadows. We, we now have the substance, the one those things we're pointing to. We've been given the ultimate sacrifice in Christ. Yet still, the principle hasn't changed even though the particulars most certainly have. That worship is about first responding to God's word. So you're going to rebuild worship for yourself? You're going to rebuild worship for your family? We're going to rebuild worship for us as a body? Worship's got to start by responding as a response to God's word. For them, as it was written in the law of Moses, 
And notice verse 3 where it says, they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land and, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Why? Yes, in some sense, because they were afraid of the people around them and doing things God's way is the one way you can have the security of God. But there's another reason here. Because they did it that way, because they were devoted to living in God's world, God's way, from, from sun up to sundown. That this is what God said, and they were going to do it. Sun up to sundown, from beginning to end, from start to finish, all the way through, without exception, constantly, incessantly, perpetually, unremittingly, interminably. That every day started as a response to God's word and every day ended there as well. Which raises a couple interesting questions. Where does your day start? And where does it end? Because it says something about us, right? Psychologists say so. Business experts say so. And God says so too cared enough to point it out. Because if the first thing we do each day is power up our ESPN app or, or turn on the news feed or start scrolling through Facebook or run off to work or hit the snooze button, if the first thing we do each day is that and our days don't end any different, you can say all you want that you're, you're building a life for Jesus but your actions are telling a very different tale. Because to live in God's world, God's way, according to God's word, is a start to finish kind of thing. And if it's not where you start, if that's not where you're finishing, there's not a lot of hope for what you're doing in between. Even more so with all these offerings and sacrifices, if it, we've got to look at verse 4. The Israelites, again, it emphasizes this, kept the Feast of Booths as it is written, and they, they offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, all these other offerings as well, all the ones that are, are named right there. But doesn't it seem like some of God's word, especially back here, is just a bunch of busy work? You ever feel like that? a lot of things God's requiring, right? A lot of things he expects from his people. And at some point, it just seems like a bunch of busy work. Well, it's worth saying that even if it was, God's still worthy of it, right? He's still worthy of it. It's like your dad, who for whatever reason, whether you can ever figure it out, he likes things around his house a certain way. You know what I'm talking about, Sarah? You do, right? You know it. I know this. Your dad around his house likes things a certain way. And, and although you might like them a little different, it's still his house. It, it, like if your dad wants you to use a tape measure when you're parking your car in the driveway to make sure you are three feet from the edge of each side. Or like in the bitter cold of winter, your dad wants you to go out to the pool and remove the one leaf that he has to use a pair of binoculars to see from his bedroom window. 
is slightly bitter about. But if it's his house, he gets it his way. Even more so with all these offerings and sacrifices. If it was just busy work, God would still be worthy of it. Yet as it turns out, when it comes to worshiping God according to God's word, these things weren't busy work at all. And notice this, because these were actually so much more. Because all the offerings and all the sacrifices, the altar and all that went on it, these weren't just how God wanted his people to relate to him. These were, in fact, what made that relationship possible for an unworthy people to be in a relationship with a worthy God. It was a, a way to recognize their unworthiness and, and the death their unworthiness demanded and to transfer that unworthiness to another as they looked forward to the ultimate sacrifice, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who would not only bear their unworthiness, but transfer to them a worthiness only he had to give. Because to come back to something that we said last week, even the sacrificial system, even this part of God's word wasn't so much about what God's people were doing for God as it was about what God was doing for his people. So worship is first. If we're gonna worship at all, it's about responding to God's word. And second, it's about giving to God's work, which is a very convenient thing for me to say. It's about giving ourselves, giving ourselves and giving our goods to God's work work. And I'm not saying this. This is just the text. I'm just reading you the text. Because this is what we see the Israelites doing in response to that abrupt statement that shows up halfway through verse 6, where it says, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Because remember, though they had established the altar in its place according to God's word, and it already fired it up. The walls around that and the, the building that would house that and the temple that was going to protect that from just becoming another barbecue, the, the temple was still laying in ruins. So in response, verse 7 says, they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had received from Cyrus, the king of Persia. Why? Because though it's not the most glamorous, there's a sense that sometimes someone's got to keep the lights on for God's work to keep going forward. It's just the reality of the world we live in. That sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is provide for the physical needs of God's work. Because like it or not, our, our, if it wrote this sermon on a computer that you bought. I wrote this in an office that, that you fund. I, I, I printed this multiple times off of a printer that Sandy ordered. This is just part of the world we live in. And sometimes the most 
spiritual thing we can do, whether it's for the Johnsons or, or, or for the Karises or for Milan and Zanka over in the Czech Republic or with, with leadership resources all around the world. Sometimes the most spiritual thing we can do, whether that's with We Care down in DeKalb or, or Network of Nations on the campus of NIU, sometimes the most spiritual thing we can do is join God in the work by giving of ourselves for it. Sometimes the ground zero of worship is simply providing for the physical needs that allows it to go forward. Notice, too, though, that this is really just the Israelites giving back to God what he'd first given to them. That they're giving the money that they'd received, as the last phrase in verse 7 says, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia who himself, remember, had been stirred by God to give it to them. So worship is about giving to God's work, but it's really only giving back to God what he already gave to you and recognizing that that's precisely why God gives it to you in the first place, for his work, not your own. It's like the mom who was trying to teach this lesson to her kid and was trying to get him to put the money in the offering plate as it came around. And she told him, just put it in there, it's tainted. And he did so, he complied very quickly, but later on wanted to understand what? Mom, why was it tainted? What made it dirty? And she said, it wasn't dirty, it's just that it taints yours and it taints mine. It's God's. (laughs) It's a lesson we should all learn. (laughs) So we give to God what he's given to us. But notice also that this giving to God of what he's given to us isn't limited to our treasures. It extends also to our time and our talent. So so with the rebuilding of the temple, the next thing that we read is that the whole congregation is, is given over, a whole generation is given over to the supervision of the work of the house of the Lord with the individuals giving of themselves and the community giving over some of of their own to take care of the physical needs as, as a way of facilitating the spiritual work. Back then, facilitating the sacrificial system with the rebuilding of the temple. This people who had nothing, giving everything for the work of God. For us today, creating space for the final sacrifice of Jesus to, to be put on display and for the final temple to be established. You and me, where God now abides by the Spirit of his Son. Because this is worship. This is worship at ground zero. Responding to God's word. Giving to God's work. And lastly, speaking to God's world or more to the text, singing to God's world. I thought that, though, would cloud the point, especially for those of us who are tone deaf, even though that is, in fact, what you find, beginning in verse 10, or or, or maybe not singing to the world, but at least God's people singing loud enough that the world has to sit up and hear, right? 
where it says that, that, that when the builders laid uh, the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel, just like they had done when the first temple had been built. And it says they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And it says all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid so much so that you can read at the end of verse 13 that the sound was heard far away. God's people singing God's praises loud enough that God's world has to sit up and take notice. But how do they sing? They sing responsively. They're cheering each other on. You can learn a lot from that. As we do that in our own day and age, walk alongside of each other, engage people together, cheering each other on, singing responsibly. Of what do they sing? Of God's character and covenant, of his goodness and his grace toward Israel, toward God's people. Look what Jesus has done. Half-hearted and lackluster? No. With a great shout, it says. But remember, that was just with those offerings and sacrifices that were pointing beyond themselves. That was just with the shadows. How much more for us today, this side of the coming of the substance, King Jesus? Responding to God's word giving to God's work, speaking to God's world. But did you notice in verse 12? That as the people shouted with a great shout, it says that many of the priests and the Levites, and especially the old men who were the heads of the fathers' houses, old men, it says, who, who had seen what the temple was before, did you notice that it says that while everyone else was shouting for joy, they wept just as loudly so that the people could not distinguish between the sound of the joy and the sound of the weeping. And in a sense, they were right to. If you know anything about the history of Israel and the history of that temple because they had seen the glory of the temple before and the glory of the Lord that had departed from it. And this new temple would pale in comparison to the one that preceded it, not least because the glory of God would not immediately return. But as much as those old men were right to weep as they looked back, their disappointment with the present against the backdrop of the past should have also and maybe all the more so set them longing for the future. When a little over 500 years later, 
the glory of God would return to that temple in the form of that man named Jesus who would in his body be the temple torn down and three days later be the temple raised up for good. Who would himself take his people as living stones after him and in them rebuild that temple anew. Let me leave you again with that picture in your mind's eye. Let me leave you again with three questions. First, for when things are crumbling down, and ask yourself this, what are you worshiping in place of God? What cheap substitutes have you put in his place? For, for, for what creature or created thing have you exchanged the glory of the creator? Or if it is the one true God that you are supposedly worshiping, if life is crumbling down around you, how are you refusing to worship God according to his word? Because even if you profess to serve the one true God, but reserve the right to do so as you please, you really aren't worshiping him at all, but only worshiping yourself. Worshiping God like that will lead to the devastation of ground zero. For to worship at all, we must worship God on his own terms as a response to his word. Which is all about worshiping God through the person and work of his son, Jesus. And the power of God's spirit in a holiness that is fit for him to which he calls us. Ask yourself, first, what are you worshiping in God's place or how are you worshiping God on your own terms for when life is crumbling down? Second question, for for when you're rebuilding, let me ask you if you're rebuilding in a, a morning and evening kind of way. If your rebuilding is a morning and evening kind of thing. Uh, sun up to sun down, beginning to end, start to finish, without exception kind of thing. Or is it a half-hearted, lackluster kind of thing that you, you turn to when, when life gets really bad but turn from just as quickly the moment you think you don't need it? And maybe with that, it's worth asking if morning and evening, it's the kind of thing that, that is not only reflected in your responding to God's word but also reflected in your giving to God's work of your time, talents, and treasures. Does God get the lion's share? And I'm not talking about KBC. I hope for those who are committed to this body that that we can keep the lights on. But I'm just talking broadly. Your time, talents, and treasures, does it reflect a life that is looking to God and caring more about God or caring more about yourself. 
Get ready for life to crumble if it does. But if you're rebuilding, does it reflect a, a sun-up to sundown sort of thing? A, a Romans 12 sort of thing? Offering even your bodies as a living sacrifice, Paul will say. Uh, uh, holy and acceptable to God, which is, Paul says, your spiritual worship. For when life is crumbling down, for when you're in the process of rebuilding, lastly, for when things are in the rebuilding, a disappointment. Let me ask you, are you despising in times like those the small things? This is a good question for KBC. KBC relatively is a small kind of thing at least where we're at today. Are you in the process of rebuilding, despising the small things? And are you weeping more about the way things were than longing and looking forward to the way things may be someday? And the way things will be someday. It was to address these old men that the prophet named Zechariah said that those who despised the day of small things would soon rejoice. It was to these same men that the prophet Haggai spoke, saying, the, the later glory, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. So don't despise. Let me encourage you. Don't despise the day of small things. Don't despise the, the days of reading the Bible, which feels like such a small thing. Don't despise the days of, of coming before God in prayer. It's, it's how God's strengthening your soul. Don't despise the, the days of, of engaging one more neighbor, of answering one more question, of, of just, just seeing one more person and seeing if you can find an inroad to talk to them about your Savior. Don't despise the days of small things. It's how God's building out his church. Or despise the days of gathering together for one more Sunday, for one more song, for, oh my goodness, one more sermon. Because this is how God is building us up. And though they are relatively small things today, they are pointing forward to and leading to a big day ahead and to even bigger days in between. So let me encourage you. It's not the easiest of seasons. It never will be. But in the days of rebuilding, if you are rebuilding as we are rebuilding and looking to God to rebuild, don't despise the days of small things. They're leading to bigger days ahead. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I pray that it would be so. I pray that you would encourage our hearts, that, that we would not only devote ourselves to, to this ground zero type of worship, to, to stripped away from the bells and whistles, to, to, to responding to your word and, and to giving to your work and to, and to speaking to your world, but, but that devoting ourselves to those, you would also give us the grace of seeing that you are in fact in the process of rebuilding, of reviving our hearts and restoring life. I pray that it would be so as we continue in the things of Jesus. In his name I pray. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H Bible dot O-R-G.